with higher salaries on the horizon, attrition is way down at the Transportation Security Administration. But TSA's top official says a House funding bill would force the agency to reverse forthcoming pay increases for non-screening employees like air marshals and canine handlers. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And first of all, when are the increases supposed to kick in? So the increased pay rates will kick in for TSA employees beginning July 2nd, and they should see that hitting their paychecks toward the end of July. TSA Administrator David Pikoski told the House Homeland Security, Transportation and Maritime Security Subcommittee about these pay increases coming last week. And of course, Congress included funding in the latest appropriations bill for TSA to actually bring these salaries up and in line with much of the rest of, of the federal workforce. So TSA forecast earlier this year that salaries would increase on average about 30 percent across TSA. That depends on, of course, how long you've been there how much you're paid today and what position you're in. But in general, a 30% pay increase, so pretty substantial. And folks should have been aware of their specific pay increases since April when TSA began sending letters to each TSA employee laying out specifically what they would be getting. So that's good news for the workforce there at TSA starting next month. Okay, and before we get to the threat to that increase, let's talk about that idea of less attrition in the case of transportation security officers. That's something they're really seeing? Yeah, TSA has been struggling with attrition for its entire existence, really, for the last two decades. But it's down nearly 50 percent since the beginning of fiscal 2023. According to uh, Pekoski, TSA has gone from losing an average of 381 officers every two-week period at the beginning of fiscal 2023 to losing an average of 202 officers per pay period over the last five pay periods. So that's about over the last three or so months. And so Pekoski says there's been a 53% uptick in applications to TSA this year, as opposed to last year as well. The agency has added 212 officers on average over the past five pay periods as well. So all this is adding up to TSA potentially needing to hire 5,000 fewer officers next year than they had originally projected. So attrition is indeed way down at the agency, and they're attributing it to the pay increases. Well, it's good to know at least one thing is going right at the airports. And there's a flip side, though, that some of these pay increases could be reversed because of what Congress is cooking up. Yeah, the House Appropriations Committee's fiscal 2024 spending bill would prohibit pay reforms for any TSA employee that is not a transportation security officer. So TSA screening workforce, those officers, those folks in blue you see at the airports, they're the bulk of the workforce, about 45,000 officers or so. There's still another 15,000 people throughout TSA in different support functions and other functions that this pay reform prohibition would affect. Uh, Pekoski, during his testimony, stressed that those folks' pay is already on a lower scale as well compared to their counterparts throughout government. I think everybody can understand if a person is receiving a certain level of pay in July and August and September, and then let's say for argument's sake, the budget passes at the beginning of the fiscal year and that pay goes down, that will have an incredibly negative impact on the workforce of TSA. Additionally, as the administrator, I would be faced with the challenge of managing two different pay scales within the same agency. Yeah, a lot could definitely go wrong. He's right about that. Now, these specific positions that would be impacted if that reversal happens, all the air marshals, I mean, who exactly would be hit here? That's right. The federal air marshals, Picasso also mentioned canine handlers, explosives experts, uh, vetting experts, 
coordination center officers at the airports, uh, aviation regulatory inspectors, and then the headquarters operations employees here in Washington, the Washington area, cybersecurity employees too. Uh, that cybersecurity has become a bigger part of TSA's mission over the past couple of years. So, you know, TSA's screening workforce seems to be kind of in the clear with regard to both sides of the aisle wanting to continue these pay reforms. But Pekoski said the non-screening workforce is also a big part of what they need to do at TSA. And he says it's going to potentially be a big struggle to keep people at headquarters positions. Yeah, imagine being an air marshal and you're walking through a screening to get to your airplane flight and you know you've just got a big cut and the TSA officer that screens you has the bigger. That could make some tough relations going on there. Yeah, and here's what Pekoski had to say about that prospect. You can imagine how hard it is for us in our headquarters positions. If somebody is doing the very same job in TSA and they could get so much more money working for another federal agency, it makes us hard to retain that talent in TSA, particularly in places like Washington, D.C., where it's very easy to switch employers. And so I, you know, I look at the immediate impact on people, and I also look on the long-term impact um, on the agency. So what is the outlook for this legislative gambit? What's going on in Congress that uh, could strip all of this back? Well, appropriators in the Democrat-led Senate have yet to put forward their counterpart funding bill. It's hard to see them kind of including this pay prohibition for the non-screening workforce at TSA, but we'll have to see what they come up with. You know, the subcommittee members, the transportation subcommittee and security members, even on the Republican side, actually seem to be caught off guard by Pekoski's comments about these pay reforms and how it would affect the agency. Subcommittee Chairman Carlos Jimenez actually said he didn't think they were aware of this kind of affecting TSA in that way, having to put pay up and then bring it back next fiscal year if that bill becomes law. And Clay Higgins, he's a Republican from Louisiana, acknowledged Congress has some difficult budget decisions to make, but he voiced opposition actually to reversing any of the forthcoming pay increases. We have to make difficult budget decisions, but we're not going to do it at the, the cost of an American citizen's pay that has been adjusted appropriately to be relatively equivalent to their colleagues in a similar position in another division of government. It's a moment when we stand united, I believe, on both sides of the aisle to find a way forward there to protect your TSA workers' pay increase. And again, that's Louisiana Republican Clay Higgins talking about TSA workforce initiatives. Yeah, not good optics, as they say in Washington, or good really practice to give someone a pay raise, then claw it back, you know, in the uh, in the next round of legislation. So it looks like maybe it won't happen, the clawback. It's it's it depends on the appropriations process. As you know, you, it, people are talking about a government shutdown already in Washington. There's probably going to be a, a CR and it's going to have to shake out in this much broader appropriations process. But you're seeing there, obviously, some Republicans already say, no, this is not going to happen. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. 
came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it 
would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. 
we would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.